to the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Josh Berger. And I'm Brian Lomax. And today we're going to talk about Tennis IQ and how to play, really learn how to play the game of tennis more. And we'll kind of expand on that uh, as we go along. Uh, But we're going to rely on a model of Tennis IQ. And as you hear that term, you all may have your own definition of what that is. And I know when I work with players, Josh, I'll, I'll ask them what they think tennis IQ is, what it means. And very often, uh, you know, the answers are good. It's strategy, tactics, how to play the game, making good decisions, et cetera, all that. Um, but I think for today's discussion, we're going to rely on a model from Jorge Capistani. So Jorge was one of our guests in early days of the podcast, and he has a, a what I think is a great way of thinking about Tennis IQ because if you can actually go search his uh, YouTube channel and find his video on on what is Tennis IQ, um, and you know he opens that up by basically agreeing that Tennis IQ and things like strategy they're they're definitely related. Um, in fact, strategy and tactics are, are are a major part of Tennis IQ, but he describes a model of tennis IQ that he likes to use with his players to get them really thinking in the right way. It's really more, I would say, directions of thinking. So here's his model, and then I want to get your thoughts on the model after I describe this. So the first level of tennis IQ is more for the beginning player, um, and he describes it as the player and the ball. And so if you think about when players first begin to play tennis, I mean, there's a lot going on. And they're not really sure exactly what's what's happening out there. They don't have much control of hitting the ball. They may not even have a very good sense of what their strokes should look like. And, and all they can really, as he says, handle at that point is just them and, and this ball. Um, but after a period of time, and you start to develop some control and your skills start to smooth out and even out and maybe begin to bring some consistency, maybe even get to the place where you can play a, play a game, play a match, um, then you go to level two. Now, level two is more just about your side of the court. So he talks about how we're at this point, we're making more decisions about where we want to make contact. Maybe it's right about the waist level or, or whatever. We're, we're thinking about our footwork. We may be thinking about other technical aspects of the game, but it's really much more just about our side of the court. Um, and then level three, which he refers to as, as pro-level tennis IQ, and I would agree, and, I, and, I, and although I have worked with some players at a, a very high level who, who are not necessarily always at level three, but level three is is understanding more about the opponent's side of the court. And this is where I think we begin to graduate toward learning to win the game. You know, distinguishing between looking good and being effective. And so we're concerned with the other side of the court, meaning that we want to know a little bit more about what our opponents like to do, what they don't like to do what makes them comfortable and uncomfortable so that we can begin to formulate some of our own strategy there and, and, and go after, you know, what, what they don't like to do. Ultimately, that's what, what we want to do. And so I think this is a very useful model because 
many players are are kind of stuck in that level two piece where they're very concerned about themselves. And I find myself, Josh, talking about this concept a lot, even with the you know the high level college teams and high level college players that I work with, because there's so much focus on what I'm doing and, and more specifically what I'm doing wrong. Right? And it becomes a lot more about my skills than it is about how am I applying pressure to win to win this match. And so because I I find, and I'm sure you find the same, that I'm talking about this a lot, I think this makes sense as a great episode to help people understand how to win the game more and, and what to really focus on and, and maybe even come up with some mindsets and mantras that can help people. So I want to stop there, Josh, and just get your thoughts on on that model of tennis IQ. Yeah, um, I I was excited when you when you mentioned this as a uh, as a potential episode idea because I think um, I also don't always see players, even high level players, applying this type of thinking to their games. Um, you know, oftentimes if we're talking about a match and how a match went, it's a lot more about that level one or level two in terms of, okay, you know, I wasn't finding the rhythm with my strokes or maybe, you know, my footwork wasn't to where I wanted to be in terms of, you know, level two, in terms of maybe the footwork or your positioning in the court. Um, but not always thinking in this level three way in terms of how we can apply, apply that to, um, to the opponent and to the opponent's side of the court, applying our own strengths, applying our own attributes of our game to, um, what we can then do against our opponent, um, trying to identify their weaknesses, trying to use our strengths to the opponent's weaknesses. And I, I would say it's definitely um, this concept uh, is definitely connected to um, a book that I know we've mentioned a lot um, on the show. It's definitely one of my favorite books, um, period, I would say. And it's it's Winning Ugly. And uh, I read that book back in back in high school, um, and I you know certainly recommended it to teammates and to players I've coached um, on the court and on the sports psychology side. And really, what that book is is you know it, it shows that you can you know without changing anything about your game, without changing anything about your strokes, you are able to you know by just understanding the game better and understanding what the opponent is doing, you, you are able to be a lot more effective out there. I mean, uh, Brad Gilbert talks a lot about, you know, being able to use your strengths to the opponent's weaknesses, being able to identify during a match who's doing what to whom, right? So, okay, let's say you go down 4-1 in the first set. There's different ways to respond to that. You can be upset and saying, okay, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm far too inconsistent right now. I'm making too many errors. Or you can you know, take a step back and try to say, you know, what's really happening? What's, what are the, actually the dynamics at play that's causing the score to be the way it is right now? Um, so, uh, you know, having that understanding, and it takes time, but having that understanding of what the opponent is trying to do, um, whether successfully or not, um, is, and once you have that understanding, it can certainly take your game to that next level. I, th I think an important point here is that regardless of your level, regardless of, you know, even, even professionals, 
uh, it's not realistic to think that you're going to a hundred percent of the time be thinking in a level three way that you're constantly going to be thinking about your opponent's side of the court and how you can apply your own game to the opponent's side of the court, because there, there might be situations where maybe if you're not playing as well, maybe if, you know, one of your strokes in particular hasn't been, um, you know, has been misfiring or, you know, you've been hitting too many errors where you might want to take a step back and, you know, go back to maybe thinking about level one in terms of yourself and the ball, right? Maybe you're not doing some of these fundamental aspects that I know we can, we'll touch on more, but um, no, I, I would say, you know, within this model, it, it, as you sort of climb up the ranks, it, it allows a player to not just get into a competition of who has better strokes on a given day. Okay. Is my forehand better than yours? And I'm going to win. I think that's a very sort of base level of thinking here. It's more like, okay, do I, am I able to apply my own game um, effectively against my opponents? Um, You know, sabotaging whatever they're trying to do against me, putting them in uncomfortable positions and um, using my own strengths in an effective way. I think you brought up an important point there about, you know, we're never really sort of 100% in one level or another. Uh, Even if you're playing great, you're not 100% level three, but... What I notice when working with players, because a lot of people will say, and I bet people who are listening will say, hey, I, I might be at level three. I think about the opponent. But if we were to say, download your last 100 tennis thoughts and we were to categorize them into these different levels, we would probably find most of them in the level two category. Maybe 70, 30, 80, 20. And to me, the message here is, can we flip that ratio? I think it's it's fine to have some level two thoughts when you're out there. That may help you actually simplify some things. So, for example, um, you could say something to yourself like, okay, I need to attack the contact point. Okay, that might help you release some tension, et cetera, make good, good contact with the ball, et cetera. It's definitely a level two thought, right? So, your side, it's about something you're doing. Uh, but at the same time, you have purpose with how you're playing. So you could have more level three thoughts about, okay, why am I doing what I'm doing? I'm not just hitting balls. And you see a lot of players who are sort of a see ball, hit ball type of thing, and their only strategy is hit hard, harder, and harder until the point ends. And uh, that's not really playing chess as far as tennis goes. That's really more of a... um, You're not really understanding how to play the game. So I think level three and level two, the relationship isn't 100% level three, 0% level two. It's understanding a good ratio of those. And based on how we're playing, we may have to drop back into level two or level one. Um, But ultimately, you know, why do we want to be at level three? I, I think level three, as we've talked about many times on this podcast, is a recognition that tennis is a combat sport. Your opponent is the person on the other side of the net. Very often, our level two thoughts are directed at ourselves, almost as, as ourselves as the opponent. And that's, that's, that can be harmful. As I said earlier, you know, when I go to a college practice, I'll just listen to the audible self-talk. And it's all about mistakes, it's almost 100% negative. 
everybody's seeing themselves as the problem as opposed to solving the actual problem, which is on the other side of the net. Like you had a great example, Josh. Somebody might be focused on on their mistakes. And then you said, well, you need to kind of look at what the dynamics are, right? The dynamics might be the reason for the mistakes. Like your opponent might be doing something that is causing you to make mistakes. But if you're just putting it all on you, you probably don't solve that problem. You probably continue to, to fight yourself. So I think number one, level three is understanding this is a fight. And, and once you get over learning to fight yourself, then you can go out and, and fight the opponent more. Um, I think level three is also the idea of playing with purpose. Why am I hitting certain shots? Why am I using certain patterns? How do I apply pressure in different ways so that I can win? Um, you brought up Brad Gilbert winning ugly. That is probably like the culmination of playing good level three tennis. Um, you know, it's winning ugly right there in the title. It tells you it's not winning pretty. Nobody cares. There's nothing in the score line that says, oh, Josh not only won, but he looked fantastic doing it. It's, that's just not the purpose of this, right? You don't get extra points for looking beautiful uh, here. So, you know, what Brad Gilbert was able to do, and, and, and let's remind people of his college coach's scouting report on Brad, which was good forehand, decent serve, no backhand, wins matches. That guy got to number four in the world because he understood that this was a fight. He understood how to apply pressure in the right ways, and he didn't fight himself as much as maybe some others. Right? I'm sure there were moments where he did have some, some level two thoughts that, that were kind of inward, but for the most part, he knew exactly what he was doing with what he had and how to best apply what he had. Um, and I think another aspect of level three, and maybe we can bring in um, some of our conversation with David Samuel here, it's about making the opponent mentally uncomfortable. We've talked many times about breaking the opponent mentally, breaking them physically. Let's make them mentally uncomfortable. So these are all reasons that we want to get more of our thoughts onto that level three. And a part of that is accepting what is happening in the moment. Um, it's accepting you know, whatever you have on that particular day. And the more you can do not to fight yourself, and as you said, Josh, understand the dynamics of the match so you can actually solve the problem. The problem probably has more to do with the dynamics of the match than there's some technical problem with my forehand. I would say, especially at the higher levels, uh, the reason your strokes are breaking down in a match is never technical. Now, there might be a technical symptom as a result of what your opponent is doing to you or you feeling pressure or anger or whatever. But if we were to take you off the court and put you on the practice court, you're probably perfect technically. So it's never technically the issue, right, once you get to a certain level. Um, so th that's what I really like about level three. I'll often tell players, well, I think there's a level four. Level four is the purpose of level three, which is to break the opponent mentally. However you want to phrase it, um, 
the more thoughts we can have at level three and really be looking to play the game to really fight the fight, the, um, the more interesting tennis will become for you as a competitor. I like that. I like, I like how you, how you finished that um, in terms of, it should be interesting. It, you, you know, it, I, I like thinking of it as sort of like a creative process or almost like solving a puzzle out there, thinking of your opponent as, you know, a puzzle and knowing that every player has weaknesses, has cracks in their game. Um, but, but sometimes it takes time to figure that out. Maybe it's, um, you know, and there's, you know, there's different ways to do this. Maybe during the warm up, you test them out, test them on certain types of shots. Maybe it's, um, you know, a really low ball, right? You you hit a, a low slice, or maybe it's certain types of volleys that are uncomfortable. Um, so thinking about, you know, using that warm up time, but also during a match, it might take some time to really figure out, you know, what types of tactics are going to be most effective at making them uncomfortable at bringing them away from their best game. I know we've talked about in the past in other episodes, how, you know, if you, if something's not going well, you can essentially change one or one of two things. You can try to figure out how to raise your own level, or you can figure out how to um, lower the opponent's level. And in terms of raising your own level, there's, there's certainly things you could do there, but in terms of um, sort of, lowering the opponent's level or sabotaging what they're trying to do, having a really clear idea of, you know, what, what their weaknesses are. And again, you know, that, that might t- take time to um, figure out, but, and so having a clear idea of that, but what you should definitely have a clear idea of is your own game, right? So you can sort of build the, build a, a stronger sense of the opponent's strengths and weaknesses as the match goes along. Maybe you have an idea going into it, but you should have a pretty clear sense of your own game. And again, maybe on a day-to-day basis, that varies a little bit in terms of what your best strengths are on that given day. But, um, you know, being able to have the awareness to capitalize on that, to capitalize on those dynamics, um, really starts with that understanding of your own game and that, you know, being able to pick up on um, those weaknesses as they start to emerge over the course of a match. I think you're right. You got to know your own game, first of all, and you ought to be designing your game to apply pressure. And I want to talk a little bit more about that, but but let's talk about, you know, when you're trying to apply in, in your game and you're trying to Find pressure points. There are definitely going to be some weaknesses to look for on the other side of the net. Now, you know some of the obvious ones are you know particular strokes. Uh, you know, like most people hate high backhands, so that's one you should automatically target in a warm up or or early on in the match to see how how they handle that. And you know, maybe they can handle two, but can they handle three or four over there? Um, their movement may be an obvious weakness. Maybe even their emotional control, their body language, that may be an obvious weakness. So, hey, I just need to get this guy to make a few mistakes and he's going to lose it, right? Um, but there are many other subtle ones that I think are important to to talk about. And I have an example with a, a student that I'm working with now. Um, and, and one is this sort of shot or rally tolerance. So... Working with this player, she played a national event a few weeks ago, and she talked about how her opponent was handling what she was doing. And so 
she decided, well, she's handling it. I got to, you know, try some variety and I'll try some drop shots and slices. And then, then she discovered that her opponent was handling that. It's like, well, I got to get even trickier and trickier. But with every sort of, um, you know, step that she went down in terms of variety and getting trickier and trickier, what happened? She was increasing her likelihood of making a mistake. And I said, well, how, you know, how many shots did you actually wait before in the rally before you said, well, she's handling it? It was pretty early, Josh. It was like three or four. And it's like, well, how do you know that she could handle five or six? You never even tried that. And so very often, you know, having patience and having your own good shot rally tolerance, you, you may have to wait longer as you get better players' breaking points in rallies will probably be longer and longer. And sometimes the answer is be more patient. You know, continue to hit that that cross-court backhand to their backhand and so forth. So that's a, to me, that's a subtle weakness to look for. Um, look for, you know, maybe the decision-making that your opponent makes. That's not an obvious one, but hey, maybe they like going down the line uh, often when they're pulled into the doubles alley. You know, maybe they make that shot two out of ten times, but you should take that. Take the other eight. You know, so you may see decision-making. Um, you may notice their ability to handle pressure late in sets as something to take advantage of. You may notice their conditioning as a match goes along. Um, and there are probably a lot of other subtle things that we can look for, but we want to understand these because then you can begin to craft your game around that. How do I put more pressure? Because if you watch guys like Djokovic and Nadal, especially on clay courts, um, they are really testing their opponent's patience and rally tolerance. Um, A lot of times they win matches, especially second sets, easy because the opponent just isn't up for it to to, to stay out there that long and hit that many balls, etc., they're going to just start going for winners, and they raise their tolerance. Basically, they raise their risk of, of making mistakes. So I think it's it's good for all of us to understand what are some of those pressure points that we can really lean on in matches, so that when we have strengths, we can apply those to those things. Yeah, I like that, and I, I would say one of those. One of the one of the biggest thing that comes to mind in terms of applying pressure would be coming up to net. Yeah. Um, that's that's you know to to me one of the best ways to apply pressure to the opponent. Um, it's important to remember if if this if it's late in the set, if the score is tight, it's not just you that's feeling the pressure. The opponent is likely going through the same you know very similar. Um, you know, collection of emotions at that, in that moment. So if you come to net and it's a, you know, it's a big point, it's deuce, you're putting a lot of pressure on your opponent to come up with the shot there, to come up with the goods. So um, that's, you know, cer- certainly one of, one of the better ways to apply pressure. Sometimes you'll come up to net and they'll just miss the passing shot. You won't actually have to hit the volley. Um, and especially if they're tight, especially if it's a big point, it, you know, the, it just becomes tougher. So um, that's a big one. Um, you know, I, I would say also after, let's say you play a long point 
um, you mentioned uh, shot or rally tolerance. Um, that's that's definitely a time where you know right after a long, draining, exhausting point. Um, are you confident that, that you can play another one because your opponent might be less likely to be able to hang in a 15, 20 shot rally in that following point? Um, so th- those are those are a couple that come to mind in terms of applying pressure in some, I guess, unique ways. Um, what are what are some that, that come to mind for you? Well, I like those. You know, I think uh, for some of us, if you happen to be someone with a big serve, that is uh, in itself a, a pressure applying aspect of your game. Because if, let's say, I'm playing a big server, I'm automatically going to feel more pressure to hold myself. Because I might feel like I can't break this guy. And if I lose my serve, it's over. And I'm sure a lot of people feel this even at the pro level with guys like Isner and Riley Opelka and Ivo Karlovich. They're difficult to break. And uh, so a lot of the sets they go to are, are tiebreakers or they win, you know, they'll, they'll have one break. Um, and so, yeah, maybe improving your serve, making your serve a real weapon can be very much uh, a means of, uh, of applying pressure. Or if you're a serve and volleyer, that's, like you said, even just getting to net more. Um, and as you said, the getting to net more and putting your pressure, your opponent in a position where they have to make a shot, it made me think of our, our opponents are just like us. So like if you don't want to be in that situation, your opponent probably doesn't either. So use that information to your advantage and put them intentionally in positions that you think will make them uncomfortable. If they make you uncomfortable, they probably make the opponent uncomfortable. Um, and that could be as simple as, hey, I don't like hitting high backhands. I bet my opponent doesn't either. Let me go there. Um, I don't like playing long points. Maybe i try that. I don't like having to hit passing shots under pressure. Okay, let me be the one to make the opponent. Like now you're thinking less about you and more about how you, how you win the game. Um, so whenever you're thinking about your own game and, and how to win more and how to win the game more, I think it's a lot about how you apply different types of pressure. Again, knowing yourself, um, knowing that your opponent is a lot like you in many ways. Um, and I think sometimes we have a danger, Josh, of overestimating the mental game of the opponent thinking that we're not thinking about it enough that so-and-so well they're tough and they've got this ranking or rating or whatever but everybody's breakable and so we don't want to overestimate and i think we talked a little bit about this in our last episode the idea of respect all fear none um but even the people who are even with we might be overestimating their mental abilities and, and using that as a bit of an excuse have the courage to do what you need to do and make them prove it. So when we are like estimating or judging, we're not making the opponent prove anything. We're just assuming. So we want to make sure that they, that they uh, can prove they can handle the pressure that we're putting them under. Yeah, I like that. And I think for, for each player, um, being 
they can apply pressure in different ways. You mentioned some, some players are bigger servers. That's a definite way to apply strength. Let's say for, for some players, their strengths more lie in, in their returns, in their consistency. Um, just by making more balls in the court, just by making more returns in play, you give yourself a chance. You put more pressure on that on the server to finish off the point or, you know, close out the game or whatever it may be. So thinking about how you can use your strengths. And again, that comes back to this, uh, having a clear understanding of where your strengths lie, but thinking about how you can use your strengths to apply pressure um, based on that understanding. Um, I, another one could be, you know, making them hit their weakest shot over and over again. Let's say it's a backhand, right? Um, making them hit five backhands in a row. Will it break down, right? It, you know, making them hit 75% backhands on a given day, make them beat you with their weaker shot, I think is, a, you know, a, a tip. You know, if, if you're going to go out and, and lose, you want to make sure that you've tried everything. You want to make sure that you're not, that, that they're not necessarily beating you with their best stuff, but you're putting them in a position to try to come up with their goods, uh, come up with the goods on, on their weaker side. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, thinking about what, what are some things that, that you struggle with or that most players struggle with? You mentioned high backhands. I think also certain types of volleys, right? I, I don't, I can't think of too, too many players that like, you know, high backhand volleys or overheads, or, you know, low volleys, right? So, so really, you know, and again, this, this takes time. No, there's no, there, there's never been a case where somebody just picks up the game with this sort of an understanding, takes time learning the game. It takes match play experience um, to really c- come to this understanding of what, what's going to be effective and what, what sorts of shots um, are going to be effective in, manipulating or sort of sabotaging the opponent's goals. And that, that was actually one of the things I liked a lot when we um, had Jorge Capistani on for our, our interview, when we talked about, you know, sabotaging and being able to sabotage the opponent's game plan, which sometimes takes us, you know, changing up our own games in order to do that, but also thinking about how you, we can build in time during practice to practice some of those sabotage techniques. Maybe it's using the slice more, maybe it's serving volleying, Whatever it may be, you know, just thinking about how we can really uh, sort of systematically break down the opponent's game and, and look to practice that so that we're practicing bringing the opponent down to a lower level, not just, you know, constantly working on our own games and our own strokes. I think disrupting rhythm is another way of, again, playing level three, right? We're not just giving the opponent what he or she wants. I want to go back to that, you know, hitting to the weaker shot over and over again because um, you will watch players, they'll start off, maybe hit a couple shots over there, and then they'll, for no real good reason, go to the other side. Almost like, well, I have to change it up, and they they have all these sort of what-if scenarios going on. Well, if I hit too many shots over there, their backhand will get better. And I'm like, well, how do you know that? (laughs) <laughs> like you're projecting this, make them prove that they can do it before you decide to change. And it's, um, you often will see players not be boring. They'll try to mix up these things up and you'll hit a couple to the backhand. Then they'll go to the forehand and you're just setting yourself up to possibly, uh, lose your dominant position in the point by going to the opponent's better 
stroke intentionally. Uh, so I think when we talk about hitting to the weaker shot, you want to do that over and over and over again. Be boring. Make them, like you said, Josh, make them win it with that shot. If they can, well, then you know, kudos to them. But you don't want to let them in the match because you chose not to apply enough pressure to that weak shot. That would be a, a strategic mistake on your part and would not really be you know, good level three thinking, thinking something, something else. So I think that's, that's really important. The idea of um, yeah, people not liking volleys I think is great. You know, no one really likes high. It's hard to be effective off that high backhand volley. It's, I think, especially under pressure, difficult even for some Division One college players to hit overheads late in sets. It's a lot riding on that shot, and you feel the pressure because we all have in this, you know, in our minds that that should be a put away shot, and maybe that's too much the dominant thought as opposed to actually executing the shot um so you know lobbing at a you know at a good good nice high lob is something absolutely should engage in especially at the end of sets make somebody come up with that under pressure um but ultimately you know everyone is breakable and and i think we have to go out there understanding that and the better that you become as a tennis player the more you're going to have to push on these pressure points to really find that breaking point. And when I said that if you can do this, you know, tennis will become more interesting. I remember Josh many years ago when I first went out onto the court with that goal of breaking somebody mentally. I hadn't really heard of that before. So I was like, all right, I'm going to try this. I'm going to like really purpose my game towards breaking this, this opponent mentally. And when it actually happened, it completely changed how I viewed the sport. It's one thing to read it or hear it about doing that. It's a whole nother to go out there with that purpose and then see your opponent go to a place where they didn't want to go and understand that you did that. You're the one that did that. And the match I'm thinking about, it started off like 2-all or 3-all and ended up, I think, 6-3-6-0. And even talking to the opponent at the end, he was kind of not very gracious about the whole thing saying well you know there are better players than you around and i was like all right fine and i knew just him making those excuses i did that i i made him make those excuses he had to protect his self-esteem that losing to me by that score well there are other things going on etc etc i was like okay that's fine but that even in itself was a sign that i had gotten to him you know mentally and and how we all do that is different. As we've said, you know, how I apply pressure in my game is, is very different than how others do that same thing. And if you know, the listeners can really grasp and embrace this model of focusing more on what your opponent is doing, putting more pressure, making them mentally uncomfortable, thinking a little bit less about yourself – and, and, and looking at that more, like I said, it will make tennis more interesting. Um, and I think you'll almost – you'll reach another level of consciousness as a tennis player and a tennis competitor. And I think that's ultimately you know, what we want to help people do 
Um, are there going to be days where your game is faltering? Yes. Uh, and maybe you have to go all the way back to level one, and it's it's back to me in the ball. Um, and it's back to me just watching the ball. That That may actually be something you need to do just to rebuild your confidence. But as you rebuild your confidence, you can begin to expand the levels again, get back into level two, get back into level three as quickly as you can. So it's not about 100% level three. Um, We may traverse between one and three, all in the span of a match. Um, But ultimately, if, if if our, when we go out into the court, the goal, the high level goal is to be at level three and to make the opponent uncomfortable, if you get that, then it's easier to go between these these different ways of thinking. Yeah, so it, um, I, I would say that I have had similar experiences, um, both in terms of USTA, in terms of high school, college tennis, um, and where I have, have certainly also had matches where I, I felt that I broke the opponents. Um, and, you know, I, I think my particular way of doing that was sort of through consistency, was through changing up the spins, was through trying to make them uncomfortable, maybe having to hit a weaker shot over and over again. And but I actually think I fell into a little bit of a trap that I think is important to caution against where I at times would stop thinking about my own game and my own strengths at times go almost too far over to that side and um, would solely be thinking about the opponent and, okay, what am I doing to, you know, okay, am I finding their weaknesses without necessarily applying my own strengths? So I think what's important here is to make sure that both pieces, you know, that, that, and what I was doing wasn't true level three thinking. I was just thinking about the manipulation piece or the sabotage piece without, you know, thinking about that, um, that I would say level two, that, that sort of makes it up that I wasn't doing everything on my side of the court within my control. I was sort of skipping a level thinking about, um, you know, thinking about doing things that would break down the opponents. And I can be a little bit more concrete, um, where my backhand is definitely stronger than my forehand as it always has been. Um, but I would have matches where rather than hitting through it and being aggressive with my topspin backhand, I would end up slicing a lot with the idea that this is something that's going to throw off my opponent. You know, this is the type of thing that maybe they don't like. They're not able to hit as much pace or using it as an approach shot or different, different things. But what would happen was I sort of would become this at times, you know, not, not when I was playing my best, but some of the matches that I look back at, you know, w- without feeling like I, I played particularly well, um, I felt like I, at times, went almost into like a junk baller type of mode. Um, rather than, you know, still hitting through the ball, I would sort of, you know, go away from that and just go into this sort of sabotage mode. Um, without actually applying my own strengths and what I do well, just try to break down the opponent, which which wasn't effective. What I found was that I, when I am using my strengths well and playing in an aggressive way, but with that awareness of what is going to be effective in terms of what they, you know, what parts of their game they're lacking in and applying it to that level three, that's when I was most effective. So um, I, I think that's just an important point that we, 
as we try to um, play more using using this level three thinking, we want to make sure that we don't lose sight of our own strengths and our own, you know, what we do well and what we traditionally would match us with. Um, but we just want to make sure that that we are utilizing that in the service of breaking down the opponent's game and bringing their level down and um, having that full understanding of, of their side of the court. I think for a variety of reasons, sometimes we can lose track of our own identity as players. And and, and your story is a good one because you, you did, in a way, lost your uh, a sense of really you at your best. You went to this other thing and um, while maybe effective at times, maybe it was a little bit more passive than mm-hmm. you would prefer to play, um, more than an active and aggressive means of applying your strengths. Um, and so I do think that's a really good point to bring up is, you know, am I playing my game? Or if, for a variety of reasons, have I been sucked into something else? Sometimes the opponent is successful at bringing us to their game. Uh, or, like you said, it really wasn't the opponent who brought you there. You didn't end up playing his game. You just sort of went to something else, and you just lost your own sense of identity out there. Um, and so having a good sense of your identity, knowing your strengths and how you apply them, is really important. Because uh, like I think of a guy like Roger Federer, and when you know, we had Sean Brawley, on the uh, on the podcast and he talked about how after the 2017 Australian Open that that Federer won in five sets over Nadal he asked him one very simple question how'd you do it and the answer was that you know when Roger is playing his best all he's thinking about is him and the ball watching the ball now that on the face of it sounds like he's a level one thinker Okay, but Roger's got a very mature game, one in which has been well designed to put pressure on the opponent through aggressiveness. He almost doesn't even have to think so much, given his offensive style, doesn't really even have to think that much about the level three stuff because he just does what he does and he can simplify it down to, all right, I just need to watch the ball. And anybody who's watched videos of Roger hitting balls and seeing it at slow motion does a very good job of, of tracking the ball. Um, and so, but if he didn't have that great sense of who he was, Josh, I don't, you know, he would have to think a little bit more about what I'm doing. And it's not that like Djokovic and Nadal don't have that sense, but they're generally more on the defensive side of things. So sometimes they're reacting more than they are directing. Sometimes, you know, uh, it's not that Federer can't play defense, but he's pretty much offense first. And he's going to be looking for first strike and using his forehand, um, et cetera. And so he has such a good sense of that. He's such a mature player um, that it's hard for him to forget that identity. For us, for most of us, we really have to engage with, hey, am I playing my game? Am I imposing my game on somebody else or is somebody imposing their game on me? Or have I just, am I just too passive? And, you know, so I think it's a really important point that you brought up. And I, I think if we think about the, at the professional level, um, a couple of players that come to mind in terms that, that I think are really good at applying pressure. Um, on, the, on the women's side, I think of Ans Jabor. Um, as somebody that 
you know, uses the slice really well, uses the drop shot, is, you know, very often brings the opponent out of their comfort zone, um, sort of through her creativity, through being able to mix it up, through using her strengths in those areas to keep opponents on their toes, keep them guessing. And another example of that um, on the men's side is Maxime Cressy, that maybe not everybody's familiar with. Um, he played at UCLA. Um, he is now, you know, he's now top 100 in the world. I don't know his exact ranking, but he's had some, some great results recently. I know he was in a final of a, a 250, ATP 250 in, um, in January in Australia against Nadal and also played a really, really tight match against Medvedev. It won four sets, four very tight sets at the Australian open. And, you know, he's, he's very tall. He's six foot eight. He serves really well. He actually serves in volleys, which is extremely rare these days. I don't, can't think of, you know, too many players that I would categorize um, as serving volleyers anymore. So um, I think, you know, he, since he plays in a unique way and again, using his strengths as a server, you know, as a good volleyer um, to apply that pressure to the opponents, um, he's able to keep, you know, keep people guessing and um, sort of prevent them in a certain way from getting comfortable and playing their best tennis. And, um, you know, again, this doesn't mean that, all of us need to go and become sort of volleyers or, you know, use the drop shot and the slice like on Jabor. But what we want to be doing is trying to identify, Hey, are there certain tactics that the opponent might have a tougher time with like coming to net more, like maybe bringing them up to net more as well. That's, that's, I think a, a definitely an underused tactic. You mentioned Federer. That's something that I think he does really well in terms of using sort of a, a slice, you know, a short slice that forces the opponent into the net and then, you know, passing, passing them from there. Um, that's actually the a t- a particular tactic that can be helpful against certain types of players. Like for example, like the ultra consistent player, you know, pusher type that they're sometimes called, um, you know, we, we sometimes talked about coming into net against that type of player, but you can also think about bringing them up to net, right? If, you know, going back to this point, if we're playing somebody who's primarily a baseliner, they generally stay, you know, stay at the baseline most of the time for a reason. They're generally not as comfortable at the net. So if you can think about how can you bring them into net, maybe it's through a drop shot. The drop shots can be risky, as we know. So the short slice could also be an option to bring them into the net, sort of bring them out of that comfort zone um, in order to try to pass them from there. For sure. Um, that's a great shot to use. And uh, it, it's making them hit up on the ball. Even if they don't come in, they're hitting up on that ball. It diff- can be difficult to be offensive on that ball. may give you an opening to, to do something with, with your next ball. Um, you know, if I think about now level three a little bit more on the mental side, Josh, I feel like, and maybe this is a, a Brad Gilbert thing as well, a player who is really predominantly at level three is very good at being in the moment. For example, let's say you're five all in the first set um, or second set, doesn't matter. It's not about how you got there because there are a lot of permutations for how one could get to five all. You could have been up five zero. You could have been down zero five. It could have been five two or two five, right? There are a lot of ways you could have gotten there. Um, but once you're there, that doesn't matter. Anymore, And I think the level three player understands, okay, we're at the business end of the set. 
It's five all. What am I going to do now? And again, another Jorge Capistani thing is, you know, what's important now? That's what win stands for. What's important now? It, it's totally irrelevant how you arrived at that moment. If you're beating yourself up for how you got there, you're, you're at level two. You're not actually playing the game to win. You're more concerned about what you look like and perfection and all these other things that are, you know, are great, but they don't really matter when it comes to actually winning the match. You have to be in that moment. And that's what a really good level three player does. That's why we've talked so much about being in the moment, using your routines to help you be in the moment more, help you understand what's right in front of me now. Maybe it's just I just need to play a really good point right here. I need to really work the the opponent, play long point, get get him or her tired, or I need to put on some pressure. If you're at five all, you have just as good a chance as anybody to, to win that set. And I think that's really what a, a true level three player is going to realize in that moment, regardless of how they arrived at five all. Yeah, um, you know, if it's five all, we don't want to just be upset that we're at that point, right? We talked about um, actually just just in our last episode what 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 to do if you're supposed to win or lose. If you're supposed to win and somebody tells you, "Oh, that'll be easy," and then it's five all, are you upset that you're playing such a close match against this person that you were supposed to, you know? beat easily? Um, or are you thinking about what's important now and thinking about, you know, what are the tactics that I need to execute here? What, you know, and keeping it simple too. Um, you know, these, when we talk about tactics, I think sometimes that it it can almost feel a little bit daunting for, for some players. Um, you know, so just being, having maybe two or three big tactics that, that you like to use, maybe it's the serve out wide and it's, you know, going with your forehand hitting, you know, going to the other side with that next ball, or maybe it's um, a certain type of return and following that up with a certain shot, but, you know, keeping it simple, not, you know, generally just a, just a couple shots two maybe three shots um, in a tactic, but um, trying to have a clear sense for, okay, what's important now, what sorts of tactics do I have to, should I keep in mind? What are what are the most important things to keep in mind here? Maybe it's five all and okay, I know my opponent's probably tight here. I'm returning. I might have some more looks at second serves here, right? So with that knowledge in mind, you know, maybe there's specific things you want to do on that second serve. Maybe you want to look to attack it. Maybe you want to look to run around it or you want to look to chip and charge or whatever it is. Um, but having that understanding of the opponent um, and again, not just their strengths on the physical side or, or tactical side, but also on the mental side that they, there's a greater likelihood that they might be tight here. And to me, it, that's, that's an understanding of the opponent and of their side of the court, but it's just, it's also an understanding of the game, right? It's an understanding that people are more likely to be tight in that situation. Um, and so that's, you know, that might be, a time, a time where they're more vulnerable and more of a, a chance to attack at that point. And if you're in level two, what's happening to you? You're probably the one who's tight. You have that second serve, and what are you thinking? Oh, I can't miss this. Yep. And you've, you've lost really all purpose for how to, how to play that. 
right? So that's a good example, Josh. Um, any last thoughts on uh, on how to play level three of Tennis IQ? I would say um, match reflection can can do a lot to um, to get better at this. You know, can can, can play a, an important role in, in improving at this skill. Um, you know, when when after you play a match, taking the time to go through it and say, you know, really thinking about what you did well, what you didn't do as well, what you can learn from, you know, from that match. Um, but also trying to think, you know, were there ways to, um, to utilize the information at hand in terms of your own strengths and your opponent's weaknesses that maybe you didn't capitalize on? Um, you know, this is a skill thinking in this way is a skill, right? So it's, it's something that, takes practice that you know you're not going to just immediately be able to do it at the highest level so it's you know after each match along you know along with identifying your own game and your own and your own strokes identifying the you know how you did at this type of thinking i think is is very important were you able to manipulate or sabotage the opponent were you able to take the advantage or, or take the information that you were given and use that to your advantage? Or were you more thinking in this level one, level two way in terms of, okay, I'm, you know, I want to set up my forehand because that's my strength. Okay, great. We want to set up our forehand. We want to use that strength, but how can we use that in the best possible way based on the information that, that we have, based on the information that we've accumulated over the course of a match? I think that's a great tip. And I think perhaps to facilitate that, let's go into a specific practice match with a process goal of playing level three so that when you come to the reflection time you can come back and 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 really properly assess that goal rather than maybe have other things and well did i play level three i wasn't as focused on that as i should have been perhaps um like you said this this way of thinking is a skill so do it in practice make it a focal point of what you do and um, then you can really assess how you're doing and learn from that whole process, right? So great, great point, Josh. Um, so that's our show for today. Thank you all for listening. For more on today's episode, please check out the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions for me and Josh, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag tennisiq. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube so you can be notified of new episodes. You can also check us out on Instagram. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.